Hey everybody, Steve Skojak here. The podcast is coming up in just a second, but first, a brief message from our accounting department. In a world where most Catholics have lost their way and eternal life hangs in the balance, a website arose to face the challenge of our darkest hour. One website with one mission and one desire to restore Catholic tradition rebuild Catholic culture, and help the faithful prepare for and survive the gathering storm. That website was known only as One Peter Five. But with the forces of darkness and rising expenses gathering on all sides, the cause was destined to falter without your help. Please visit onepeterfive.com forward slash donate today and make a tax-deductible contribution. The success of our mission depends on you. Coming soon to a computer near you, this fundraising event is not yet rated. Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast, episode 17. This one is going to be a bit of a rant. Stay tuned. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello, everyone. I wasn't planning to do a podcast today. I have other things to do, a lot of catching up to do. I've been on the road a lot uh, the last few weeks. It's been a busy summer for my family. And uh, this past weekend, in fact, was our anniversary. My wife and I celebrated our 12th anniversary on Sunday. And we packed all the kids into the car and just took a trip out to the beach. Uh, just drove, hit an early mass, and drove up, went to uh, the ocean, and just let the power of the ocean and God manifest through nature wash away all of the distractions of the world. Just spent a day together playing with my kids in the water and sitting on the beach and enjoying each other for a change. I wish it could be like that all the time. I wish it could be like that for all of us. We don't take vacations really much as a family. In fact, this was a one-day trip. We drove out, we drove back, about seven hours of driving in one day. It's one of the most practical ways, I guess, to take a family of eight anywhere on a budget. But we don't get to escape from the day-to-day. It's just, it's not possible. We're here today and we're we're playing catch-up on cleanup. We're looking at the enormous pile of bills that keep piling up that we never seem to keep up with. Trying to figure out our next moves and our next steps. And then I look, I look at what's happening in the world and in the church. It's incredibly discouraging. And I know from speaking with many of you or from just seeing the things that you say that you're discouraged too. 
my wife and I have had this conversation not infrequently lately, and she has the same feeling that I have, that there is no port in the storm. There's no place to turn. The society that we live in, and that appeals, I mean, applies to you know, many of you who may not even be listening from the United States, and we have a growing audience overseas, but you know, if you live in a culture that is a product of Western civilization, you most likely know what I'm talking about. It's all going so fast. It's not a slippery slope. It's a, it's a roller coaster. It's just straight down. It's a straight shot to the bottom. We're moving too fast. And nothing seems to be slowing it down. If anything, it seems to be snowballing. And it's one thing to look around you in society and say, oh man, we are in trouble. Immorality, perversity, it's everywhere. It's not just prevalent in the culture, but it's now being enshrined in law and being used to forcibly make those of us who disagree with these things comply or face consequences. We see this all the time now. But frankly, the most discouraging thing is that it's not being taken care of in the church. The church is actually making the situation worse, not better. The church is not standing for what is true and what is good. Now, yes, I know that there are individual priests and a very, very small handful of bishops who are doing so. But when I see the statements of Cardinal Whirl about gay marriage being the law of the land and Father Jonathan Morris saying that you know, we shouldn't conscientiously object if we work in uh, government offices that issue uh, gay marriage licenses because it's the law of the land and this is not how you know we do things as Catholics. And when I see the Pope talking about how you know, we should be praying for the miracle of, of taking things that are impure and scandalous and making them good. What are we talking about? What is happening? Did you know that this morning there was a picture of two lesbians engaging in a kiss right on the front of the German edition of the Vatican website? Now, the link was to, I don't even know what the story was about. I don't even care. I don't care if it was about how bad gay relationships are. It's, it's a form of same-sex pornography, essentially. It's appealing to those base appetites. And then stick it right on the Vatican website. Now, there's been an update to the story. The picture was taken down. But why was it there in the first place? Why are these things happening? It's difficult to say with any kind of certitude why it's happening. We've heard from popes and saints in the past, St. John Eudas, we talk about him a lot, and about how the surest sign of God's wrath is when he sends us bad clergy. Well, that's clearly happening. In the encyclical Quas Primus, which established the Feast of Christ the King, Pope Pius XI talks about 
how sometimes God allows false doctrines to propagate in order that you know those who are compliant with and who are obedient to the truth may be strengthened in their resolve. We get these statements here and there about these things happening. We see it in some of the Marian apparitions. I posted uh, some some things from Our Lady of Good Success yesterday. She talks about these these falsities le- leading and giving rise to restoration in the longer term. It's a sign of hope when these things begin infiltrating the church. It happens. But man, when it's a tidal wave, when it's a deluge, and it's just coming down on you day after day, you can try to avoid it now, but you can't. You can't. You can't unless you go completely off the grid. Just throw your cell phone out. Do not use a computer with internet. Do not pick up a newspaper. Do not watch a news program on TV. Do not show up at your parish where a lot of this crap gets propagated in various ways. You cannot escape the reality that apostasy is reigning within the church. And as we move now toward the second half of the synod, a synod which was supposed to take some of this stuff off the table, it's not. It's back with a vengeance. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think? I was talking with someone the other day about this very thing, and I said to them, you know, what what must the apostles have felt like when Christ was in the tomb? What were they thinking? And the person turned on me and snapped, I am so sick of comparing what we're going through to what they went through, because it was for three friggin' days. And then he was back. And they knew because he told them he would be back. But this goes on and on and on indefinitely and never seems to let up and never seems to stop. I understood that feeling of frustration because I feel it too. And yet, I reiterate, what was it that the apostles must have felt when Christ was in the tomb? You don't think they had a moment or more than a moment where they said, oh my gosh, he's dead. He's dead. He said he was coming back, but he's dead. Is this what's going to happen now? Where do we go from here? It's done. We gave up everything. We followed him. He's in the tomb and we are exposed. We are going to continue to be persecuted. There, There is no path forward from here. What are we doing? You think those temptations didn't happen to them? That they didn't have those thoughts, those moments? I mean, if Peter could sink walking across the water to Christ, what must he have felt when Christ lay dead in the tomb. And yes, it was only three days. And yes, they had the more imminent promise of Christ's return. It's been a couple thousand years. It's a little longer than three days. But that feeling that maybe everything you put your faith in is wrong, that's the one you've got to watch out for. 
I can't tell you how many times in the last month or two I've seen people talk about leaving the Catholic faith and becoming Orthodox. What? What are you thinking? You're going to just leave over the same stuff that they already adopted hundreds of years ago? Do you think that they're any better on marriage? Do you think that that this is going to solve the problem? You can't run from this, ladies and gentlemen. There is no running. There is no hiding. We talk on our website sometimes about the Benedict Option. And yes, some people object to calling it the Benedict Option because, as they say, Benedict was fleeing the collapse of an empire and we are witnessing the birth of a new totalitarian global empire. And yes, the analogy may not be perfect, but the idea is one of retreat, is one of living a life of work and prayer closer to the land and away from the cultural influences that are causing the decline. But make no mistake, there is no Benedict option or Anthony of the Desert option or whatever you want to call it that allows us to escape the evils of our present age. We must face them. They will find us. They will hunt us down. Demons are running rampant on the face of this earth, I assure you of that. Many of you have no doubt perceived them at certain times. We have, in my family, and families, people who are upholding the church's traditional teaching, Christ's teaching on marriage, on sexuality, on the sixth commandment, We are getting hammered. And if you're listening to this, chances are you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your finances are taking a pounding. Your family is experiencing fighting and discord that you're having to constantly work to keep in check. You're feeling as though you're losing family, you're losing friends because you're just standing for what's true. You feel as though you're in a world that's gone crazy because you can see the truth and you can see where things are going and you talk about it and people call you all kinds of names. Either they call you a bigot if they're coming from the left or they call you a sinner and a scandalizer if they're coming from the right or within the church. Because how could you say these things about the bishops or even the Pope? How could you think these things? And all you want to do is to be faithful to our Lord. The church is the bride of Christ. But inasmuch as a bride and groom are one flesh, the church is also the mystical body of Christ. They are one flesh. The church endures what Christ endures. The church was given birth to out of Christ's passion, death, crucifixion, and resurrection. But now the church is enduring those things. The church is enduring the passion. And we have to go through this suffering to get to the other side. We can pray all we want. Father, if it is possible, take this chalice from me. But the important part of Christ's prayer on all of it is but not my will, but thine be done. 
we are being asked to suffer. And that means that we are being given the grace to suffer. God does not ask us to go through things alone. Because we can't. You can do nothing without me. He told us this. And as Ray McConnell reminded us in the podcast interview that we did with him, I think it was episode 14, 13, he said, God didn't say, you can't do much without me or most things without me. He said, you can do nothing without me. The suffering that we are being asked to endure at this moment for most of us, and there are exceptions, clearly, look at the Middle East, but for most of us, this is not a suffering of physical mortification of body and soul. Yes, many of us have undertaken voluntary penances to mortify ourselves, but God is not chastising us physically at this time. He is chastising us emotionally, spiritually. When Christ calls out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not issuing a cry of despair. He was recalling to mind the Psalms and the fulfillment of prophecy, but it was an image of that feeling of despair and of abandonment that we all feel as we carry our cross. We feel sometimes as though God has abandoned us, but he never will. He keeps his promises. And if we are faithful to him, he remains faithful to us. But it doesn't feel like it when you don't know what you're going to get when you walk into a church on Sunday. Are you going to get a homily that supports the church and Christ's teaching? Or are you going to get one that celebrates the victories that have been won over and against his church and his teachings? And I've heard from not a few people who have said that their priest on a recent Sunday was pretty much giddy with excitement that gay marriage is now the law of the land in the United States. Gay marriage so-called. We know that it's not marriage. It's, it's astonishing that some people are able to continue in this illusion that things are not as bad or worse than they have ever been in the church. I'm sorry, you're wrong. If you think that, then you're wrong. You're ignorant of history, or you're just willfully obtuse. I want to say foolish. Maybe foolish is the right word. The Aryan crisis is the only time in church history where things have been anywhere near the way that they are now. But at that time, there were great saints who led us, we're keeping our eyes out for those in the present day. And the Pope, Pope Liberius, despite coercion, did not turn Arian. He did not act as the person who was fomenting the Arian crisis. 
Historians have quibbled over this over the years, but it seems that the evidence is he did not actually give in. He did not turn against St. Athanasius. He stood firm. He was marginalized, but he stood firm in the faith. I'm about to make a statement that it may cost me any number of readers and listeners. But I think it's a, it's a statement that needs to be said, and it, the time has come. There is no single human being on the face of planet Earth at this present moment who is doing more damage to the Catholic faith than Pope Francis. Bar none. Whether it is through his appointments of horrible people, horrible men, heretics, atheists to pontifical commissions, people who oppose and revile everything that Catholics believe, empowering these people, and we've linked to the list of appointments, which I can't even keep it up to date because there's so many. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I mean, you can take a look at the kind of people he has put either into power or has praised. People talk about Cardinal Casper and how it's not the Pope's agenda, you know, to promote his the, the so-called Casper solution, etc. So someone explained to me, just let's hear a reasonable, rational explanation why the Pope says this is theology done on one's knees. This is a man whose, whose book represents a serene theology. Why he has promoted Cardinal Casper and put him back into the spotlight. Why he allowed him to give the keynote at the consistory before the first synod. Why Cardinal Casper has gone out and spoken in his name and Pope Francis has never once distanced himself from that man. Has never once said I don't agree with what he's doing and with what he's saying. And he has taken liberties in my name that should not be taken. Scandal. It is a scandal that he has been silent. He has let this man give the world the impression that he, Pope Francis, agrees with this agenda that Casper has to deconstruct and violate the Sixth Commandment. Officially. Why does he not speak? Why, when he gives interviews to people who consistently are accused of misrepresenting his words, does he go back to those same people again and again and again and never, ever issue a clarification through his press office, through his PR man? Yes, he has a PR executive on staff. Why? Why does he allow the scandal of his words to go uncorrected? Unless he wants it to go uncorrected. That he wants the impression being given to be one of complete, fundamental, substantive change of the way the church does everything. I, I don't have the ability to read his motives, his mind or his heart, nor do I have the moral authority to do so. But I ask you, if there were a Pope who wanted 
to destroy the Catholic faith, the authority of the papacy, the opinion of the world on what the church teaches. What would he do differently? He certainly wouldn't come out with a program of mass destruction where he would just tear down everything around him, visibly, obviously. Just start making attacks on doctrine and dogma because nobody would listen. People would turn on him right away. You see, you can't make an all-out assault on something so well-established and so well-loved but to undermine it through subtlety, to say just enough that is orthodox, that people feel that they can't discount the things that you say that cause them nightmares. Now that's far, far more effective. We are living in times that I do not understand, that I do not know how to comprehend. I say these things about our Pope, which I never thought I could possibly say. And yet at the same time, I completely believe he is the Pope. It's what makes him so effective at what he's doing. An anti-Pope would be easy to dismiss. I don't think we have the luxury, first of all, of deciding for ourselves that he is. If some future council or Pope decides through you know through god's grace and through the discovery of historical facts that francis was an anti-pope then fantastic maybe we can erase some of the damage but until such a thing happens that speculation is idle what we see instead is a man who appears to be for all intents and purposes a valid legitimate pope who is leading the faithful away from the authentic practice of the faith by his example, by his words, by the things that he has done, by the documents that he is producing, by the synod of bishops that he is leading. So what are we to do? Well, we must not lose faith. And that's one of the most difficult things to do right now. But I think... I don't know if you've noticed this. I've had the opportunity, actually, to go to Mass during the week um, more frequently in the last month because I've been taking my children to some camps um, kind of far from home, uh, but the first thing that they do in the morning is Mass. So I've been getting to go to the traditional Mass. Uh, Last week I went every day. And last week was an amazing week because it was a week full of big feast days. We had the Feast of the Most Precious Blood. We had the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. We had the commemoration of St. Paul. We had the Visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We had the Feast of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who was one of the great fathers and doctors of the Church, who died a martyr's death for the faith. We had a lot of big big feasts that remind us of what the cost is for standing firm in the faith. And the readings have been eerie these last few months. I feel as though, I don't know if you ever do this, but you'll go to Mass and you'll be feeling you know, all the things that are going on in the world and in your life. And, and there's um, 
There's that prayer from the scriptures. You speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You alone have the words of everlasting life. And I will pray that sometimes, needing the consolation of God's word. And in times past, I would say that and I would listen to the gospel. I'd read the gospel or the, or the, the epistle and it didn't really fit anything that was going on. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, you know, I ask, you don't have to say yes. You don't have to give me the words I need to hear. But lately, it seems as though it sinks up every time. On Sunday, the epistle was from Romans 6, 3 to 11. Brethren, know you not that all we who are baptized in Christ Jesus are baptized in his death? For we are buried together with him by baptism into death. That as Christ is risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also may walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin may be destroyed, to the end that we may serve sin no longer. For he that is dead is justified from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall live also together with Christ. Knowing that Christ, rising again from the dead, dieth now no more, death shall no more have dominion over him. For in that he died to sin, he died once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are to share through our baptism and through our life in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time for martyrdom. White martyrdom, red martyrdom, it remains to be seen. Personally, I am terrified to think of what my children will experience in their lifetimes. I don't think that there's really anywhere to go to get away from it. We just have to endure. We're expecting a baby in September. Number seven. I don't know what kind of a world she's being born into, but it's very little like the one I was. How do we find hope? Well, because we trust in him. You know, one of the things I don't understand about the state of your contests, they have created this weird logical scenario where they say the Pope has to do X, Y, and Z, and the Pope's not doing it, therefore he's not the Pope. And then, where does that leave them? Well, they're, they're like these little islands that float out there nowhere, you know, waiting for some undeniable event to take place that will demonstrate to them that there's a real Pope and a real church again. But where are they going to go? That church isn't going to exist somewhere out in the ether. It's not going to exist, you know, out in Montana. The Pope, who restores the church in their view, is still going to have to be the Pope of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church is the only church that Christ established. It's the only one that he promised indefectibility to. There is no place to go. You know, I was reading earlier this morning, actually, about Pope Alexander VI, the, the most famous of the Borgias. 
he has the unique distinction, the uh, the singular. I don't know if you want to call it uh, award of having sired more children than any other pope. And in 1501, he held what was called the Banquet of Chestnuts. Now, historians sometimes have attempted to dispute the authenticity of this story. Mostly historians who want to defend the papacy. But the papacy has sunk to some pretty low depths in the past. And in this particular case, they had 50 dancing prostitutes at this papal banquet. And when the banquet was completed, they decided to have an orgy, at which prizes were awarded for those who could perform the sexual act most often with the courtesans. They gave out you know, tunics and shoes and whatever kind of gifts they had available. And it was reported, historically, that the Pope himself distributed the prizes to those cardinals and priests who had completed the sexual act with these prostitutes the most number of times. But it just gives you an idea. You know, Pope John Twelfth was a horrible man had people killed, uh, has been alleged to have raped pilgrims, uh, had a brothel at the Vatican. I mean, these guys were bad guys, and they existed, and they were real popes. What must those Catholics who were faithful at that time, those who were aware of what was going on in the Vatican, because most of the world was no doubt blissfully ignorant, lacking mass communications, but what did they think? When they, when they saw these things going on, this, this immorality, this debauchery, and yet the church survived. The church will survive this as well. But the way in which it will survive will likely be different. You see, the personal immoralities of a given pope, the sinfulness of a given pope, has only a limited effect Yes, it can give scandal, and it certainly would if it was seen on a wide scale. But insofar as these bad popes were contained within the apostolic palaces, and they were more interested in pursuing hedonistic pleasures than doctrinal mutations, the effect that they had was relatively minimal. But what we're seeing now is a distortion of Catholic theology. It's a distortion that is happening through the auspices of pragmatism, of pastoralism. This idea that, yes, the doctrine is this and the teaching is this, and of course we can't ever refute or change that. But you know what we can do? We can take a look at individual case-by-case scenarios and see whether that doctrine really applies to you. And if we decide that you get an exception, that you get a pass, well then... The doctrine remains. It's still the doctrine. But in your case, we just don't think it really fits. Obviously, this cannot be allowed to stand. But it will stand, at least for a time. It's already being done. And this is exactly, 
For those of you who think this is impossible, wake up, because this is exactly what was done with contraception after the issuing of Humanae Vitae. Bishops and priests, who with a wink and a nudge told faithful Catholics contraception was not really a big deal, don't worry about what Rome says. There's a reason why so many, the vast majority of Catholics, use contraception. And and it's because they were told not to worry about it. The moral authorities in their lives failed to do their jobs. Not only failed to do their jobs, actively undermined their own work, their own authority, their own sacred duty. And it's going to happen again. Get it in your head. It's going to happen again. No matter what happens at the Synod, this is coming. The changes to marriage, to an understanding excuse me, an understanding of homosexual relationships to whether or not the divorced and remarried can receive communion. These are a fait accompli. The question is not whether. The question is how widespread, how deeply damaging will these things be? And so when the church survives this period of time, what's going to happen inevitably is that it's going to shrink. It's going to shrink by attrition, first of all, because once we have shown the world that we don't really believe in anything that we say we do, we're nothing better than a big, fat, religious NGO. We're just, we're just a non-profit nonsense factory. I don't know why anybody would be attracted to a Catholicism that has no morals, no discipline, is beyond me. Catholicism is it, it's, it's completely abandoned its sense of aesthetic wonder. We are not patrons of the arts. We don't produce beautiful paintings and, and symphonies and, and, and masses, compositions, and we don't produce art. We don't produce architecture that's inspiring. Uh, we don't do anything that would make the, the heathen look to us and say, they've really got something going on there. We've abandoned all of that. So now, if we also, and by the way, The second thing was we abandoned our liturgy. We abandoned the beauty and the sacredness and the mystery of our liturgy. So we showed in that way that we don't take our faith very seriously. And now, if we abandon sort of the last bastion that you have seen since the Second Vatican Council, every priest, every bishop and pope, think about it, has been measured in terms of their orthodoxy by the yardstick of their adherence to the church's sexual moral teaching. A man could celebrate the most irreverent Novus Ordo Mass, but if he preached against contraception and abortion from the pulpit, he was considered to be an Orthodox Catholic priest. But now, we're going to remove that last pillar. So what will be left? Well, what will be left are those of us who say, you know, non, non-servium, but not to God, to our new masters. We will not change. We will not serve this new paradigm. Satan said this to God, and he's been getting the rest of us to say it ever since. Maybe it's time to turn it on him. We serve one Lord and one God and one church and one set of teachings. We have a deposit of faith that we're obligated to follow. Not just because 
It's the rules, but because it is the means by which we will attain eternal salvation. There is no other way. If you want to get to heaven, you do these things. Nobody who wants to bake chocolate chip cookies thinks that under the auspices of mercy, they can substitute chili peppers for chocolate chips and can substitute powdered jello mix for eggs. You can't just change the structure of a thing when the ingredients are necessary for a desired outcome. It doesn't work. You can't swap them out. If you want heaven, here's the recipe. It's not that hard to follow. It's challenging, but by God's grace, it can be done. So the church will diminish in size. We have prophecies that we're not going to go into, but they do talk about a false church. Will the church split? Some people think so. Bishop Schneider said that it was likely that it would split on this issue. Do we get a big false church of papal positivism, of doctrinal squishiness, of pastoral solutions, so to speak, that are really nothing more than heresies, than sins, and then a small remnant church, and then what does that look like? I don't know. And you know what? It's not even our business to know. We don't have to figure it out. We can ask, we can question, we can speculate. But the question that we really should be asking, the big, most important one is, do we believe that this is Christ's church? Do we believe it is his mystical bride and therefore his mystical body? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit has been sent to guide this church? And do we believe that God will preserve it until the final judgment? And if we believe those things, then it doesn't diminish our duty to fight for the truth or for the faith or for the salvation of souls. We are always obligated to do those things, but we must trust that God in his providence will provide. We are having our Christ in the tomb moment, and it's lasted longer than three days. We look to the church and we say, how can this possibly be what it claims to be when it is doing things that show us the contrary? But we have faith, and we walk by faith, not by sight. To look at what is happening in the church is to be scandalized, but to believe that Christ will come and that he is not a God to be trifled with and that he will restore all things according to his will, that's where we find our hope and our joy. We know that the victory will be won, but we also know that we will suffer. Can you imagine, not just Christ in the tomb, but what it must have been like for Mary and Mary Magdalene and John to see Christ scourged to within an inch of his life, to see him just oozing blood across the stones of Judea? How much blood he spilled in that land, poured out on the earth, what must it have been like to see that 
and to think, how do we come back from this? But to know who he was and what he was about and simply to trust him that even in death he would prevail. The devil is fighting very hard and maybe that means that he's running out of time. I mentioned to you that the demonic is increasing in the world. You need to be equipped to fight it. I recommend to you the prayers of the Auxilium Christianorum, which is a society, a Catholic society of priests, exorcists, and laity who pray for themselves and for each other to be freed of demonic harassment. It's an incredibly powerful and important society, and I will link to them in the, in the show notes, but I, I can't encourage strongly enough, if you are at a place in your spiritual life where you can dedicate yourself to these prayers, they are profoundly powerful and necessary at this time. And I will leave you with the prayer that the Auxilium Christianorum members conclude with every day. A prayer that was given to a priest whose name, unfortunately, I don't know that I will be able to pronounce uh, because it is French. L'Abbé Louis-Edouard de Sestac. That's my shot at it. He was beatified in May of this year um, after he had obtained uh, the cure of an 89-year-old man uh, who was wounded and had a gangrenous decomposing leg and almost died, but then regained consciousness and the leg started to heal. This was the miracle that was used for his beatification. Well, this priest received from God this following prayer, which was indulgenced uh, by Pope St. Pius X. And the prayer is, August, Queen of the Heavens, Heavenly Sovereign of the Angels, Thou who from the beginning has received from God the power and the mission to crush the head of Satan, we humbly beseech Thee to send Thy holy legions, so that under Thy command and through Thy power they may pursue the demons and combat them everywhere, suppress their boldness, and drive them back into the abyss, O good and tender Mother. Thou wilt always be our love and our hope. O Divine Mother, send thy holy angels to defend us and to drive far away from us the cruel enemy. Holy angels and archangels, defend us and guard us. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. Virgin, most powerful, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray for us. St. Michael the Archangel, pray for us. All you holy angels, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel we've provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. 
Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.